You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's scripture is from Isaiah 21, verses 1 through 10, and chapter 22, verses 1 through 11. The Oracle Concerning the Wilderness of the Sea As wilderness and the Negev swept on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land, A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays, and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned, for me, into trembling. They prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually day by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights, and behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. O my threshed and winnowed one, What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. Chapter 22. The Oracle Concerning the Valley of Vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city and excellent town? Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, Look, away from me. Let me weep my bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls, and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, And you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. This is the word of God. One of my favorite book titles is a book called Seeing with New Eyes. Happens to be a book about 
counseling, and it's a good book in its own right, but what I really like about this book is just the title, Seeing with New Eyes. I think that title actually gets at the heart of what it is that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings about. What the gospel does is it causes us to see with new eyes. It's not that we see different things, it's that we see the same things differently. Some of you are in the midst of this transition right now. This is what happens when you're converted, when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes and and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's awakened in your life and you come to see the goodness of who Jesus is. Some of you are in the midst of this where you, you saw the world in a certain way. And yet what's happening right now is that you're starting to see things differently. This is why one of the primary metaphors in Jesus' teaching is the metaphor of people gaining sight. Why many of the miracles Jesus does in the Gospels are miracles of healing the blind. Those aren't just bare miracles to display Jesus' power. They're they're miracles that testify to the essence of what the Gospel is. It's a bringing of sight and ability to see with new eyes. This is really the goal of all of Scripture and especially of prophecy. The prophet's in every way, want us to see with new eyes. The prophet Isaiah wants us to see with prophetic eyes. He wants to open to us a new way of understanding the world. We saw last week that in Isaiah 13 through 20, the prophet makes five declarations that essentially make the same point, and that is that God rules decisively over the nations. Isaiah's wanting us to see, hey, though it may look like nations rise and fall, kingdoms come and go, political leaders ascend to power and then are taken out of power, underneath all of that, if you have eyes to see, is a sovereign God working out His purposes in history. That's what Isaiah showed us last week. And now this week in chapters 21 through 23, Isaiah makes five more declarations that essentially make the same point, but there's an interesting difference. See, in in chapters 13 through 20, if you remember last week, he was going around the compass and he was talking about specific civilizations and nations that were present in his day and time. But now in this next section of oracles, he's starting to raise his eye beyond his own day and look further out into the future. And so, for instance, in chapter 21, verse 1, he he says, an oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. He's talking about Babylon, we'll find out later, but he uses this cryptic phrase, the wilderness of the sea. He wants his readers, his hearers, to clue in that he's not only talking about the Babylon of his day, but he's talking about Babylon, the biblical metaphor for worldliness. See, there's Babylon, the historic nation, and then there's Babylon in the Bible, the symbol of all that is opposed to the kingdom of God in the world. And Isaiah is talking about both Babylons. He's talking about Babylon in his own day, and also about Babylon in our day and every day. So here's what we want to do this morning. I want to show you what Isaiah sees, and then what he wants us to see. 
So we're going to start just looking at the text and, and examining what it is that Isaiah sees. What is he talking about? And then we want to see, what does he want us to see? If he's not just talking about his own day, but he's talking about realities that are present in every day, in every age, what does he want us to see? So let's begin just looking at what Isaiah sees. Isaiah chapter 21, verse 1. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. Now, what is true about both the wilderness, the desert, and the middle of the ocean? What do they have in common? What they have in common is that neither is fit for human life. Neither is a place where human beings can flourish. And Isaiah is combining these two metaphors and he's saying, this is what Babylon is. It's a desert in the middle of the sea. There's no life there. There's nothing there for you, people of God. Isaiah's word about Babylon is really contained in verses 6 through 9. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Isaiah sees not only that Babylon is not fit to sustain life. Not only that Babylon is a place of spiritual death, but also that Babylon is doomed. Babylon is going to fall. Babylon's idolatry, her gods, the things that she worships and sees as ultimate are going to fall to the ground. Isaiah says, Babylon has nothing to offer us. Don't put your hope there. He goes on then to a second oracle, verse 11, the oracle concerning Duma. Now, there's a play on words here, and let me give you the background to it. He's talking about the nation of Edom. In fact, in the next verse, he'll say, one is calling to me from Seir, which is another name for the kingdom of Edom. But you see, in in Hebrew, the way it was originally written, there are no vowels. The vowels were supplied by the readers. It was an oral tradition. The only thing that was on paper were the consonants. And you see the consonants in the word Edom and the consonants in the word Duma are the same consonants. And so in a sense, Isaiah is playing with language here. Duma means silence. So he's saying, God has a word for Edom. Here's what it is. Nothing. Silence. One is calling to me from Seir, Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, Morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. This one comes and says, Hey, can you give me anything, any information? And the answer is, Another day is passing, come back again later. God has no word for Edom, only silence, Duma. In verse 13, we see the third oracle, the oracle concerning Arabia. And again, there's a play on words here because the consonants in the word Arabia are the same consonants in the word night or 
evening. And so some of your translations might say an oracle concerning the evening time. The language is intentionally vague. In the thickets of Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of Dedanites. To the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread. O inhabitants of the land of Tema, for they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword and from the bent bow and from the press of battle. You see the description here is of people who are refugees. They're, they're leaving, they're fleeing a war. They need provisions, they need sustenance. Isaiah is saying Arabia is slipping into the night as it were. The sun is setting on this culture. There's no light there for you people of God. The fourth oracle that Isaiah gives us is in chapter 22, and it concerns Jerusalem. Isaiah 22, verse 1, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. Now again, there's deep irony in this title. Here's why. Because Jerusalem sat high on a plateau. If you read the Psalms, they speak about going up to Jerusalem because to go to Jerusalem, you literally had to go up. It was an elevated plateau that was above all the land around. But Isaiah says, it's the valley of vision. What he's saying is, this is the city of God's people. These people, of all people, have the light of God's revelation. They ought to see clearly. They ought to have a clear line of sight, spiritually speaking. But instead, it's like they're down in a valley. It's like their sight is limited. They're looking at the wrong things and so they don't see. Look at verses 8 through 11 and look at the language of looking and seeing. Notice verse 8. In that day, he's speaking to the people of Jerusalem, you look to the weapons of the house of the forest. This is one of the fortresses in Jerusalem. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. See, he's saying... Oh, you, you looked and you saw strategery. You saw the need for the city to be built up and the water supply needs to be fixed here and the, the walls need to be repaired here. We have some work to do on the city. You saw that. What you didn't see was God. You missed the point of what God was doing in the situation. Your spiritual sight was dulled and so the people of God have resorted to good strategy but they don't have a sense of God on their hearts. The final oracle in this section is in chapter 23, and it's introduced as the oracle concerning Tyre. Here's what Isaiah says. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast. The merchants of Sidon who cross the sea have filled you. And on many waters, your revenue was the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. 
The ancient civilization of Tyre is one of the most interesting civilizations in all of ancient history because here's what we know about the people of Tyre and Sidon. These were two cities on the Mediterranean coast. What we know about them is that they were some of the most well-known and well-traveled merchants in all of the world. They were a seagoing people. They were known for their ships and for commerce. In fact, I'm reading right now, for the first time in my life, uh, Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey. It's a great work of Greek literature. The reason we have the Odyssey, which was written by Homer in about 900 B.C., the reason this writing exists is because the people of Tyre traveled to Egypt, bought papyrus, which was made in Egypt out of a reed that only grows in Egypt, brought it back to Asia Minor and sold it to the people there, some of whom were Greeks, one of whom was Homer, and therefore he had something to write on. Apart from the commerce of the people of Tyre, we wouldn't have many of the treasures of the ancient world that we have, especially literature. But notice Isaiah says, Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. This great ancient civilization that prided itself on commerce and shipping and industry was going to be laid waste. And again, he says to us, your hope is not there. Don't put your hope in Tyre. Don't put your hope in commerce. That's not where it's to be found. So this is, at the most simple level, what Isaiah sees five oracles, Babylon, Duma, Arabia, Jerusalem, and Tyre. And as you can see, there's, there's irony, there's subtlety, there's plays on words in the midst of all these oracles because he's, he's making a point in each one. So, so let's now consider, what is it that Isaiah wants us to see? What, what are we to see and encounter in these chapters? Isaiah wants us to see two things. He wants us to see with new eyes the culture around us. And he wants us to see with new eyes God. He wants us to see the culture around us and he wants us to see God. We have a cliche in the English language that goes like this. That person can't see the forest for the trees. What we mean when we say that is that this person is so dialed into the details, they're so focused on the minutia that they can't see the big picture, right? They're missing the forest because they're so concerned with the trees. I brought along a couple exercises to illustrate this point. What do you think you're looking at here? Looks like marshmallows and lava rocks, doesn't it? Oh, what you're actually looking at is salt and pepper. But, but you see, it's, it's magnified and you lack the context to know that that's what you're looking at. And so this does not look like salt and pepper, does it? Here's another one. Looks like a fractal from geometry, doesn't it? That's actually beer under a microscope. Okay? That's what a nice stout looks like when magnified a lot of times. See, the point of these exercises is just to say, Sometimes the reason we can't see clearly is because we're too close. Isaiah is telling us this morning, this is one of our problems as God's people in our interaction with culture. We're so close 
to Babylon and Jerusalem and Tyre that we can't see clearly. And so Isaiah wants this morning to give us the gift of what I'm going to call gospel distance. He wants to give us the gift of gospel distance. He wants to pull us back and give us perspective on the world that we live in. Let me explain what I mean. All of us are enculturated, right? All of us come to conversion to Jesus Christ having already been formed by a family that we grew up in and a cultural background that we were raised in and a set of assumptions about how we see the world. We are already enculturated people. This is true of every one of us. So we come to the gospel, we come to faith in Jesus having already been enculturated. And what conversion to Jesus Christ does is it radically dislocates us from our culture of origin, from our family of origin, from the relationships that we've formed. The gospel of Jesus, conversion to Jesus Christ, is initially a radically dislocating experience, isn't it? This is why Jesus says in the gospels things like, if anyone does not hate his own father and mother, he cannot be my disciple. He's calling you to a radical break with your family of origin, so that you can be brought into his family. The Apostle Paul, as he describes what conversion to Christ entails, what the gospel brings about in Galatians chapter 3, he tells us this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, Paul does not mean that once you become a Christian, you lose your maleness, your femaleness, your your ethnic identity. What he's saying is those things cease to have value as a primary identity. The primary identity you have now is a person in Christ. And as such, in Christ becomes primary. And now, male, female, Jew, Greek, those things become secondary. Those cultural identifiers are no longer the primary thing that marks you and gives you your identity. So, what this means is that once you're converted to Jesus Christ, a Christian who has a new primary identity can now interact in any culture without being defined by that culture. To say it another way, the gospel dislocates us from our culture of origin in order to relocate us into the people of God so that we can now engage the culture around us in a free and easy and unconstrained way because that culture does not define us. It doesn't give us our identity. So Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 speaks of his work as a missionary and here's what he says. Turning pages, turning pages. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. You see, Paul says the gospel dislocates me 
I no longer find my primary identity in being a Jew or in being educated or in being a member of a certain cultural class. Now I'm free to engage in every aspect of culture for the sake of the gospel. Because I have a different identity. This is what I mean when I talk about gospel distance. And this is what Isaiah wants to show us in terms of our relationship with culture. Let me quote a summary from Miroslav Volf, who I referenced last week. He says, The proper distance from a culture does not take Christians out of that culture. Christians have not taken flight to a new Christian culture and become outsiders to their own culture. Rather, when they have responded to the call of the gospel, they have stepped, as it were, with one foot outside their own culture, while with the other remaining firmly planted in it. They are distant, yet they belong. Distance from a culture is not flight from that culture, but a way of living in a culture. That's what Isaiah wants you to see. Isaiah wants you to live in your culture with gospel distance. He doesn't want you to flee your culture, but he does want you to have distance from your culture. He wants you to be able to see with new eyes the world around you. So let's apply this idea of gospel distance to the three images, the three cultures that Isaiah speaks of. Remember, he's not talking about specific nations. He's talking about Influences that are present in every culture. Babylon typifies what we might refer to as popular culture. Jerusalem typifies religious culture. Tyre typifies commercial culture. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ, how does redemption change the way we relate to these aspects of human culture? Let's consider first the reality of Babylon in the world that we live in. Babylon refers to what we might call popular culture. And I'm not talking here about the artifacts of pop culture. Music and movies and film and fashion. But rather I'm talking about the power structure that lies behind those artifacts. Popular culture is preaching to you all the time, isn't it? Popular culture is telling you, here's what you should think. Here's what's fashionable. Here's what's acceptable. Here's what's in vogue. Here's what's attractive. Popular culture works its influence not on the surface, but underneath at the level of what we consider to be hip and acceptable and normal and desirable. But you see, the gospel, when it comes into our lives and we're converted by the Holy Spirit to faith in Jesus through the message of the gospel, what happens is that it dislocates us from popular culture. In other words, it gives us distance to see with new eyes those messages that are being spoken. It gives us new ears to hear the sermons that are being preached by popular culture. And so those who are changed by the gospel neither uncritically consume popular culture, nor do they reactively avoid popular culture. Rather, they learn to critically engage popular culture. 
Learn to interact with the messages that it's sending and to critique those messages in light of the gospel. The gospel pulls us out of popular culture, gives us distance from it so that we can see it for what it is and learn to engage it in a way that's faithful to the gospel message. Let me give you one example. Is it not true that one of the messages in popular culture today is that you are your sexuality. Your identity equals your sexuality. That is a message that is preached at almost every level of the culture around us. And it's never told to you just like that. It's sold to you much more subtly in film and in literature and in song and in celebrities. But see, the Gospel gives us distance from that message to step back and say, Oh, that's not true, right? You are not your sexuality. You are not defined by what you do or do not do with your body. Actually, your identity is something completely different from your sexuality. Your identity is given to you as a human being made in the image of God. And human beings who are not sexually active are still human beings. But see, our culture would never buy into that. Or, or they would at some level, but really the message being told is you are your sexuality. But see, the gospel gives us distance from that message so that we can both critique it and say, that is not true of me, and also so that we can tell a better story, right? How many people around you have bought into the narrative that I am my sexuality only to find that narrative doesn't sustain and fulfill them? In fact, brings brokenness and pain and heartache and difficulty, So isn't it great that we have a better story to tell, a better narrative to bring to bear to say, no, 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 did you know there's an identity that you have completely apart from who you are as a sexual being? An identity rooted in the fact that you're made in the image of God. How is popular culture at work on you? How does its messaging How does its preaching begin to infiltrate into your soul and into your life and into your family? Isaiah wants you this morning to see that the gospel gives you distance to see Babylon for what it is. That there's a power structure behind popular culture that's not centrally controlled by some one power broker, but rather that's rooted in an unbelieving, un-God-worshipping paradigm. And that when you see that, you can step away and have distance to begin to engage the culture around you with the gospel. But Babylon is not the only metaphor, the only image that Isaiah has given us. He also gives us the image of Jerusalem, the Valley of Vision. This is an image or a symbol of religious culture. And you see the problem with religious culture, don't you? Isaiah shows it to us in chapter 22 Verses 12 and 13. Here's the problem with religious culture. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, the problem with religious culture is that the practice of religion gets disconnected from engagement with God. 
God's saying, hey, what I'm calling for is repentance, contrition, sackcloth, humility. What you're doing is throwing parties and saying, let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. The practice of religion, the feasting and the festivals, and even the gathering for worship has become disconnected from an expectation of meeting with an actual God who might ask actual things of us. This is the problem with religious culture, right? And listen to me, this isn't out there, this is in here. This is what we fall into. And engaging in sort of the external business of religion, the showing up for worship and the singing and the listening and the being involved in a church community apart from an expectation that God is here and God wants to do something. Isaiah says, you're not seeing clearly. See, what the gospel does is the gospel dislocates us from religious culture. The gospel gives us a new identity that is not, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm Jewish. But rather, the gospel creates a new people in Christ. I'm no longer defined by the religious culture or tradition I grew up in. I'm defined by what it means to be in Christ. And therefore, the gospel creates a counterculture within religious culture, right? I mean, we live in a highly religious city. It's okay to say so. We talk about this often. It's a highly religiously observant city. But see, the gospel creates in a religious city a counterculture within the religious culture, right? Because gospel Christianity is in one sense a religion. And yet in another sense, it's very different from religion. Christians are religious people who aren't religious, right? Who don't see religion as meaningful unless it's connecting us to God by exalting Christ in our affections because He's the one who mediates between us and God. So when a Christian engages in religion, what he's saying is, I want to stir my affections for Christ because Christ is the one who connects us to God, who mediates between us and God, who renews and rekindles our relationship with God. The gospel gives us distance from religious culture so that we can critically examine our practice of religion. This morning, because of the gospel, it's okay to ask what you're doing here. This morning, because of the gospel, it's okay to ask, why are you here? What do you expect to happen this morning? Are you here because you expect God to interact with humanity, or are you here because this is what you do on Sundays? It's okay to ask that question and even answer it honestly. Because the gospel is present here. God's grace to us in Christ is available here. God says, listen, I don't want people who miss what I'm after. I don't want people who show up and do the business of religion and miss engaging with me and what I'm asking for from them. What do you expect in being here? What do you expect as you go to a missional community this week? Do you expect God to be there? Do you expect to have to do business with the divine? Do you expect the kingdom of God to break in and sort of discombobulate your little orderly world? That's what God's out to do. The gospel gives us critical distance from religious culture so that we can truly engage in light of grace. The final image that Isaiah gives us is the image of Tyre, commercial culture. Isaiah 23 says that Tyre 
was the merchant of the nations. And this is absolutely true historically. But is it not also true that this is now the United States of America? Maybe China, right? But, but for a few more years, we're the merchant of the nations, right? We're one of the leading economies in the world. This is our reality. Our reality is we buy and sell. We import and export. We define ourselves by what we make and what we do and how it connects to the world of commerce because this is how we define ourselves as a people. Do you see Tyre all around you? Do you see its influence on you? Did you open your credit card statement this week? Did you talk about your profession this week? Did you get a tax return recently that reminded you of the sway that money and wealth and possessions and affluence and commerce has on you? The gospel of Jesus Christ dislocates us from commercial culture. So no longer are you identified by your vocation or by your bank account or by your earning potential. You are now identified because you are in Christ. That's the primary identity that you have. And that gives you distance then to see the corrupting influence of wealth, of a culture of commerce, of a meritocracy that defines your identity based on what you do or what you make or where you live. The gospel frees us from living for money to enable us to use money in ways that honor God. Right? So what do we know as we read the Bible? We know that the gospel brings about contentment. So that we're content with what we have. We know that the gospel creates generosity so that those who are changed by the grace of God are generous with others because they see all that they have as belonging to God. We know that the gospel kills envy. So that those of us that don't have what other people have can stop envying them and being jealous of them and judging them in our heads for what they have and then we don't. And instead we can love them as people made in the image of God who are not defined by what they have or don't have. Isaiah wants you to see Tyre for what it is. Do you? Do you see the influence of commercial culture around you and upon you? If you're an employee, which most of you are, do you see your job not just as a place to make money and pay the bills, but as a place to honor God? If you own a business, are you running your business in a distinctively Christian way that would say, something about that is different? If you are graced with wealth and with affluence, do you use your wealth in ways that further the cause of God in the world? If you have little, are you free from jealousy and envy and greed that would wish you, wishes you were in a place that you weren't or had something that you don't? Isaiah wants us to see the culture around us. He wants to give us the great gift of gospel distance so that we can see the influence of Babylon and Jerusalem and Tyre and stop living for any of them. But I said, secondly, that Isaiah also wants us to see God. He doesn't just want you to have gospel distance from your culture, but he wants, to see, he wants you to see what it is that brings that, who it is that enables that, how it is that the grace of God is the power behind that that makes all of that 
happen. See, this idea of gospel distance is a great idea, isn't it? It has power. It's interesting. It's compelling. But what about those of us that have failed? What about those of us who already buy into the lure of Babylon? The ritual of Jerusalem? The seduction of Tyre? What do we do with the fact that, that we, we are influenced by these things? We are a product of the world that we live in. What hope is there for us when we have failed to be distant, to see what Isaiah wants us to see? What hope is there for us for, as people who every day are influenced by Babylon and by Jerusalem and by Tyre? The hope is God. Look at Isaiah 23, verse 15. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, catch this, the Lord will visit Tyre. And she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. Here's, here's the key to this last image. According to the Old Testament law, the wages of a prostitute were never allowed to be brought as an offering to the Lord. They were considered unclean. God says, I'm going to visit Tyre. She's going to return to her wages and prostitute herself with the kingdoms of the earth. The reason the metaphor of prostitution is used here is because the people of Tyre were known for being relentless mercenaries. If there wasn't money in it, they weren't going to do it. They were driven by commerce. And what God says is, but see, here's the beauty of a redeeming God. I'm going to visit Tyre. And what she's going to do is she's going to begin once again doing commerce with all the kingdoms of the world. And here's what's going to be different. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. And instead of being hoarded, stored, thrown in a bank account for the exploiting of those who don't have as much, her merchandise will supply abundant food, and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. Don't you see that the hope for those of us who have bought into the culture around us is the hope of a redeeming God who says not even what you have messed up can keep my grace from entering into your life and changing you. Not even what you've done to build your own kingdom can stop my kingdom from breaking in and totally changing you in a way that changes how you think about what you have. Isaiah wants to change how you see God. God is a God of dramatic, redeeming grace. God is a God who breaks into your world and will not leave it the same. God is a God who, in spite of your failure, reaches down to change, to show grace, to redeem and restore what is broken in your life, and to make you live for something entirely different. This is what God does. 
God is in the business of redemption because God in His character is a redeeming God. And so the hope of this text is not, hey, don't give in to Babylon, don't give in to Jerusalem, don't give in to Tyre. This text is indeed saying that, but it's saying first, because you've been redeemed by a God who makes you someone completely different. Experience the God who redeems, and when you do, you will have distance from the world you live in to relate to that world in a completely different way. Not because you're smart enough to figure out what Isaiah is saying, but because God is gracious enough to intersect into your life and into your world. Isn't it true that the Bible uses economic metaphor to describe our debt of sin, right? The wages of sin is death. Hmm, interesting. Wages is used here in Isaiah 23 to speak of what Tyre will bring to God. Economic metaphor means we have a debt that we owe to God, and the grace of the gospel is God sent Jesus Christ to pay that debt, to liberate us, to free us from that debt, so that we can live as a redeemed people, as people who have been bought out of debt, set free, to live for something completely different. God is a redeeming God. He has showed His redeeming grace in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as such, when we experience and are caught up in His redemption, everything changes. Do you see? Isaiah wants you this morning to see with new eyes. Everything is different when the grace of God comes to bear in your world. Let's pray together. So Father, we acknowledge this morning that we are surrounded by Babylon and Jerusalem and Tyre. That we live in a world dominated by popular culture and by religious ritual and by commerce and industry and wealth. Thank you for the grace of the prophets who want to open our eyes to your sovereignty in our world. Thank you that Isaiah wants us to see that you are the sovereign king and the difference that makes. And thank you most of all, God, that you redeem the undeserving, that you make right the things we have wronged, that you change and transform us by grace. So would you do that work even this morning? In the grace of your word that we have heard, would you, Holy Spirit, take that down deep into our souls and bring about worship, bring about transformation, bring about change. Give us distance to see what we need to see and clarity of sight to understand how to live as your people within the world for your glory. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.